This is the Ben Ryan Podcast, part of the Sports Podcast Network. Welcome to another show where each week we are joined by some brilliant minds that deliver their take on what they think really makes the difference in performance. This week, I am delighted to be joined by Margot Wells, one of the great unsung heroes, but not by many of the international sports men and women that have benefited hugely from her talents and expertise. Her personal performance journey began as an international sprinter back in Scotland in the 1970s before she took on the task of coaching her husband, Alan Wells, to the 100 meter Olympic gold medal at the 1980 Moscow Games. In those subsequent years, she has worked across a whole spectrum of sports and athletes to make them more powerful and make them run faster. I met Margot on a wet evening down at one of the UK's top facilities, Surrey Sports Park in Guildford. In the stand at the running track she calls her second home, we had a conversation I will remember for a long time. Just like the speedball she uses so much as a training tool, she neither holds back her punches or minces her words. Open your mind, listen to our conversation and enjoy the honesty and rawness she brings. I hope you love this as much as I did and we began our conversation by looking back at the point where she made the transition from athlete to coach. People will say to me, how did you ever think that I was 25 when I started and at 27, how did you ever think that you could coach him to be the fastest man in the world with no coaching qualifications? And I mean, we're, we're talking about an era where most coaches, A, were men, B, were 45, 50 plus. And I said, it wasn't that I thought I could. I never thought I couldn't. But I have a, <laughs> I have an amazing set of tools which makes my life as a coach easier. So I have a video brain. It will record every run he did in that session. On the way home, he would say to me, what was my pickup like on the second sixth day of the first set? And... I could tell him exactly because I would replay the video. So like a photographic one, but like for, 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 movement, for, vi- for, for movement. For movement. Okay. The other thing I can do is I can slow movement down. So he was running really, really fast, and to yeah. me it was like slow motion. So I could tell what every part of his body was doing and be able to feed back. Hmm. And I never lied, and I never, you know, some people were scared to say to him, no, that wasn't very good. But I never had that fear, and I just used to say, no, well, no, I didn't like that at all. And um, and he didn't like the fact that I told him that he didn't. I didn't like it. And but I would tell him something. I mean, it was a weird situation. He would go back and he would ask somebody else, and the person would say, "Oh yeah, 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 no, you never did that." And then he would change it. It wasn't easy to do. Yeah. And whilst I still ran myself, I mean, people that were always in Scotland were always coming up to me and saying to me, "Oh, you know, you could have been this and you could have been that." But you know what? I don't think I could have been and used the energy and the time I spent on Alan or watching Alan and having achieved myself because you need to be really selfish. Mm. Actually, selfish isn't strong enough. You need to be, you know, born on narcissistic. It's all about them. Everything has to be about them. They feed off your energy, they drain your energy, they drain everybody else's energy, and it's all about having a team. I say this to the rugby players you know, you need a team of people round about you, not your team. Yes, you need your team to support you, but you need your own individual team. So we had a really good, very small team of people 
who almost wanted Alan to win more than he wanted himself. And he would feed off that energy. Back then, that would have been quite unique that they would have had that group. Because yeah. now, you know, you, you see that in some of the top, top level athletes, they will have that team yeah. around them. Yeah. But back then, that was unique. Surely. But my rugby players have that. I, I say to them, and it takes them a wee while to understand why they need that team. And sometimes things have got to go pear shaped for them to go, oh, I see what you mean. Everybody needs a team. I think it's crucial. You know, sometimes the support players don't get the credit for what they do. You know, the masseur, the doctors, the, you know, they get kind of forgotten a bit. I mean, I, I, well, was I lucky or was I unlucky? In that, I got a lot of publicity. Never really wanted it, still don't want it. Would you then, would you say as a coach, you'd like to be prefer being in the shadows than in the sunshine? You, well, that's you want to be back on stage? I, I, I agree with that. I mean, my end goal for me is always to make myself redundant. So yeah. so I don't need to go to the big games. I can sit in the stand because I know that whoever I'm coaching know what they, they need to do. Yeah. They're aligned. They don't need me anymore. Yeah. So that's my processes. But that's not every coach. Oh, no. 90%, like now, I would say it's not about the performer. It's about the coach. And I just do not agree with that at mm. all. It's, it's all about the performer. You know, the coach is... My role is to give the people I coach, every physical and mental requirement to do the sport to the best of their ability. And as I say, bring me a head, bring me the right head, and I'll give you the body to play whatever it is you want to do. The hardest thing is getting the, you know, the thinking process and the, some of them have it naturally, you know, the easy ones, Danny, yeah. the easy ones, Mike Brown. They, so that's just know. for our listeners, Danny Cipriani, one of the, probably the most talented rugby players of the generation. Yes. I, I remember... When, you know, but he hasn't had as many caps for England as, as he should have got and probably hasn't received the, the plaudits that he should no, have done over his time. I remember when I was coaching England, we just finished a training session at the Sevens at the gym and we shared our room with some of the England coaches yeah. and they had a list on little magnetic strips of all the players and their kind of their player depth. Of yeah, all the, yeah. And Danny's name wasn't there and you know, I looked a bit, bit further and he was about two feet down behind a water cooler. They'd put his name down there. And that was kind of, that was physically where it was, but he was in their heads like that, that he was too much of a risk, too, too much of a, of a maverick, all stuff that actually the right coach would have embraced. You know, you're right. I just think, when he trained here, right, I mean, he trained, we did hurdle jumps and we had this thing where you would jump, 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 grubber the ball along, run and chase it and pick it up, right? Danny would jump, 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 flick the ball over his head, catch it and then run. I mean, he is just, you know, a game's going wrong, he knows how to switch it. He can read a game, oh, phenomenal. Just absolutely phenomenal. And all the, you know, the hype about him, I think he frightens coaches because he knows more than they do. The best players, in my opinion, always know more, and it's yeah. coach understanding that that's the case, and well, then uh, uh, using that, right? Yeah. Shut up and let him do it. Yeah, and um, give him, you know, his head. And when I went to Australia, I was about to leave, and one of the coaches rang me up and said, "Did I have time for coffee?" Because I went there for da- before Danny's first yes. match with the Melbourne Rebels. The first thing he said to me was, "How do you control Danny? Because since you arrived in the airport, in Melbourne airport, his attitude's totally different." I said. I didn't control Danny Cipriani. I said, why would I even want to control somebody? He said, well, why does he listen to you and he won't listen to anybody else? He says, I said, well, I dare try and teach him how to play rugby. I dare try and put him into, you know, and, and he was an ex-Australian rugby player. And I said to him, if you as a player 
somebody came along and gave you every physical attribute you wanted to have to play the game how you wanted to play it, would you want to keep doing it? Well, of course, he said. I said, so why are you stopping him doing what he wants to do that he knows allows him to play the best for you? He's not playing for himself. He's playing for you. And the fitness coach said to me, uh, how will we know that it's you that made Danny quick and no me? Right, well, as you well know, I'm no prone to mincing my words, but I thought, we've just arrived, be polite. And I'd spent five days before the first game restoring Danny's speed. I said, but I'll tell you what, he'll be the only one running fast, and he'll be the only one running fast for a long time because he's got brilliant muscle memory and I can tweak it and bring it back up really quickly because he trained with me for ages. And that's exactly what happened. Do you find then for, like, lots of coaches would, will struggle or shy away from dealing with the players that, for the reason you probably gave, they've probably got more knowledge than the actual coach or they certainly will challenge. Mm, yeah. Do, are they the sort of athletes that you like? Do, Love do, them. They'd be your go-tos. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, as I say, we're all mad in our, in our squad. Talented but mad. So what advice would you give to anyone then that, that's dealing with you know, a player that's obviously got talent but perhaps they can't quite work out how to get the best out of them? Don't try and make the talented ones average. Everybody seems to be, every walk of life at the minute is don't go about our way up here and the, the, can you deal with the people who are below average? But average is good. No, no in my squad, average isn't good. We didn't train. I have a sign in my gym which says, I didn't come here to be average, I came here to be awesome. I didn't make it, I found it. I have a lot of other ones which are actually quite funny, like, if at first you don't succeed, try doing it the way Margot told you. But, um, <laughs> well, I, I, I guess um, at the beginning of your career, when you were coaching your husband, you're going to have to have fairly clear guidelines so you know where the coach is, agree standards of behaviour, roles, responsibilities, all that sort of thing. Is that something that you put in early in with, with an athlete or, and do you vary it per athlete? Do you have some non-negotiables, Margot, where you go, like, like, this is absolutely the way that we have to put certain guardrails in? You have to. Like, I have standards, and if you don't match up to them, if you don't agree with them, you, like everybody's always free to leave. I don't have contracts with people. I don't, you know, there's the door. You Sometimes you're ushered at it and sometimes mm. you can leave. It's up, entirely up to you. But you have to have. All the guys know it. Like with functionality, there is no leeway. So if you're, if you're again, somebody that's listened to this podcast that um, might not be sure of what the terminology means, can you explain to like a layman functionality? It is making the body move like it's supposed to move. So Roger Federer doesn't hit the ball with his arm, he hits it with his body. So if you, it's all about joined up right? You join the body up, so the back supports the shoulder girdle. The shoulder girdle, you anchor your shoulder girdle into your ass, which is what it's meant to do. You know, I harper on about the whole time about a flat back and everybody thinks I'm mad, but your back's meant to be flat. I have a grandchild with a flat back. She was born with a flat back. Don't change it, right? And then what you do, Neuro, what you do is you join the body neurologically to your brain. That's probably the easiest way, but the most scientifically mad thing I can say. Yeah, so right? are you saying almost those neural pathways, you're, you're lining them all up so they're faster? No, I'm lining them all up so they allow the body to work as one piece. Okay. Right? So if your feet don't work, your knees don't work. If your yep. knees don't work, your hips don't work, and all the way up. So if your feet aren't neurologically joined to your brain, don't work. 
Yeah. Right? And the whole, everything breaks down. And then everything, and then you get, so if you operate as a function, as a one unit, you don't get, I'd reckon, conservatively, you will eliminate 70% soft tissue injuries. Mm. But what's the really good thing is, when something does happen, I can get it back on. So the number of times I get a scan result, and I'm going, that's not right. I have the player back really quickly. And the number of times that happens. So if you could, if you just, Federer is the easiest one because everything's effortless. He'll get far reaching out there and he's able to hold his hand up there because it's supported by his body. He's not holding his arm up, his body's holding his arm up. Yeah. And then he'll just flick his wrist across court and everybody thinks it's amazing. So A, when they move, it takes far less out of them because, you know, everything's joined up. It's like joined up writing in a body. And I watched world-class sports, sportsmen in all events, and I can see why the people who win, win. And I thought, well, that's a bit unfair. If you see it, it's actually quite amazing to watch how quickly the brain will change a body. And that's the big thing, the big change for me. I remember Lawrence Delalio saying in 2013, the change in Mike Brown is nothing short of mir miraculous. And it is. That's exactly what it does. Especially, so there's people who have naturally functioning bodies. The Federers, the Messies, Danny, Bale, certain people, and there's certain athletes, COVID, and who were gifted that body. So to be able to, to understand what it takes to be the best in the world in your field, but then be able to recreate it. And it's like having, it's like borrowing somebody else's body that's a world-class performer. Doesn't matter what sport it is, they will make you perform. I mean, my three-day eventer has gone from zero to hero and people are looking at her and she's got much more control of the... I mean, it's fascinating. I love it. Yeah. She's got much more control of the horse she's got. By giving her the body, the control, the... It's not all about strength. It's not all about... I was about to say speed, but I'm never decrying speed. Speed <laughs> is the ultimate gift that I can give anybody. I love it and I don't know why people are not being allowed to benefit from it because there's absolutely nothing you can do to defend it yeah across absolutely a lot a number of sports right you know so across it's everything right it's totally indefensible it is the thing that gives the scary factor to everybody and I mean I did a talk once at rugby and I said you know do you do a lot of tackling practice? I said, yes. I said, well, there's not much point. If you can't catch them, you can't tackle them. But that's looking at things in the, perhaps in a way that a lot of, a lot of classical coaches that perhaps have gone through the system and got their badges and mm. all those sort of things, they almost feel that that's the building blocks. They've got to look at it from, they're more pragmatic now. Um, you're looking at it a different way. You're, you're, would I be right in saying that you almost you can you do an MOT immediately so you have a look at someone running and you'll immediately be able to by the way that they're running look at what you need to do and you're you're not seeing any ceilings in performance oh there's never a ceiling in a performance I keep telling them that I say you know I've come so far down the ladder that everything is easy but as you say I have no I have no coaching qualifications I have no I'm totally self-taught I taught myself the functionality because I needed to did you ever have, when you were an athlete, what was your coach like that you had when you were younger? He had a system that worked for a certain distance, a certain 
you know, like it was the old pros, so they had the handicap system. Okay, yes. But they never ran further than 120 in the sprints. And everything was geared. And the, the one thing I learned from that, and it did, it was successful. There was a lot of faults with it. But then again, there, now I look back and I can see a million faults. Hmm. At the time, I wasn't experienced enough to realise. But it's like one thing doesn't fit all. One size doesn't fit all. One fitness programme doesn't fit all. Everybody does the same thing. They just do more of it. And so everybody in my squad has different, I call them fiddlings, functionality exercises, but they have different fiddlings. But if I'm taking my time to analyse your body, tell you what it is you need to do to make that, and they come to training without having done it, oh my God, seriously. There'll be a repercussion, Mark. Serious repercussions, trust me, right? And you get away with it once, do not do it again. And is that something that day one you explain to all your athletes yep. that there's certain standards that, and they agree them, I guess? I do it before they even start. Yeah. I lay down the law before they start. To be honest, if I, sometimes, you know, somebody's, one of the players are sitting there and said to me, do you not want them to come? <laughs> I said, well, I do, but I just want them to realise before they come, this is my expectations. I am not lowering them. I'm telling you before you start. You'd certainly say that you put down very clear black and white from day one. Yeah. Everybody's clear. There's no grey in, there's there's no no, in your programme. No, no, but they still muck it up. Yeah, what do you put that down to? Well, they get overconfident. Those youngsters, arrogance. Oh, my lordy. I'd one try to tell me how to hit the speedball. Well, I just thought I'd try, because I'm giving coaching call it, you know, coaching things as she's hitting it. And I said to her, I said, can you not hear me? You know, because the ball does make a noise. Oh, yes, but I just thought I'd try it my way. Youngsters seem to take it for granted that, and then when they get, you know, better and, you know, they get up the ladder a bit, well, arrogance is unbelievable. One of the things that I see a lot in in a lot of the teams that I've worked with or consult with is that you do get these athletes that are, certainly when they get better, they're they're very competent. And in fact, they get overcompetent. Mm. But then if you're not careful, they get overconfident with it. Um, I suppose what you're saying is some of the best athletes that you've worked with, so Danny Cipriani, you know, 50-plus capped, Mike, Mike yeah. Brown that you talked about, and Carl Sinclair, who's going to have a huge amount of caps. Do you think they still want to learn and that overconfidence never creeps into them because they feel so competent in what they can do? Never. I have never, ever had an issue with them. I mean, I w- like what the, the youngsters don't realise is how much effort these guys have been putting in behind the scenes. You know, yes. like, you know, Brownie would come for holiday, land at Heathrow and, and you know, I'm just going to dump my case and he'll be here. Danny was the same. Like, I was on holiday. I was due to land at five at Gatwick. So by the time you get through and you get your car and whatever, right, I got home at seven and Kyle Sinclair and Danny would imagine. That's... People see them on the television and think, oh, well, you know. They didn't realise that off the field they're actually putting in more work. So, you know, they do the stuff at the club and stuff, but then they come and do more. You know, they're working even harder. Like, Alan's training sessions, my training sessions, never mind Alan's, I'll be teaching somebody and I'll say, I used to do that over 100 metres, and they can't do it over 30. And they're looking at me like, you know, the vo- it's not the volume, it's the intensity of the training so the sessions are short they're no long sessions but Dan Luger once said to me the difference between my training and somebody else's training 
was my training you actually cannot do anymore. Whereas other people saying you can keep going for a long time, but at a reduced space. But yeah. I didn't allow the reduced space. And so your noise, you actually you're cutting down your noise by just having the single voice and you're deciding when enough is enough because you're, you're seeing how they're moving and their form and I guess you're going, okay, we're not going to get any more quality no. out of it now. But yeah, until so. that point, it's full on and it's intense. Is that right? Is that yeah, about right? Yeah, yeah. And recovery. But how would that fit in? So in a modern, if you suddenly went into a work for a top Premier League football club and you didn't want to use all their, all their various extras... How would you persuade them that that was the right thing to do? How would you get a hire for that? Because I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I agree that there's so many things that actually just create a lot of noise and you don't actually see the signal which is making someone better. But it seems that those type of coaches are being slowly pushed out of elite sport because of the technology that's... It's almost something that you've got to have. I was asked into Man United and they said, what did you think of my gym? I said, it was quite nice, but I wouldn't have used 90% of the stuff that's in it. I mean, we were laughing because Mike Brown did a, a circuit in my gym t- the other day and he never moved it. He got up and then he went on the floor and then he sat on the bench. And he just, like, I, I said, why do you need a big gym? Obviously, we've got more people, fair enough. But there was two strips of running track inside the gym, 20 metres long. I said, what do you do on that? Well, we don't know what to do on that. I said, what's the most important distance in football? I had to think about it, but they said, nothing to five. I said, well, you can do nothing to five. And room to slow down oh that's great no it's <laughs> no what you're talking about so I mean I've coached clubs I started at London Scottish and I had a green field twice a week and they played on the Saturday I had no gym I had nothing I know I, rem- I remember it well because um, you also were running at different distances then when you were getting to that um, that lactate threshold sort of stuff yeah we were running athletic distances which to this day people try and copy don't believe it and don't leave enough recovery to get... I mean, uh, we had training sessions here, and the hardest session, which is the one we're talking about, they were on a bad mood when they got here because they knew how hard it was. Mm. You know, if you do lactic acid right, it crawls up your ass and there is nothing. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Absolutely nothing you can do. They, like, they couldn't walk. I remember Lawrence Delalio and Steve White Cooper walking across there, and I, I thought, if they turn around and see me laughing, they'll die. And, but they looked like, you know, John Wayne on a horse. <laughs> But they were able to run fast for 80 minutes or however longer they needed. That's what I mean about giving you the qualities you need to play. I mean, Kyle Sinclair's running around, you know, all over the place. And he was furious the other day because they took him off for five minutes to go. And they took him off five minutes to go based upon probably some data, perhaps, that they'd seen, or but not actually looking at the player and seeing that he's actually... He's fine. Yeah, he could actually be better, in better shape than nearly everybody yeah. else. What yeah. prop? Yeah. runs around like he the chase the kickoff he chased the kickoff with the winger and got there at the same time if, yeah. if Cove has done anything it has allowed me to get where I used to be which was 12 weeks in just my training nothing else those players went back to the club in the best shape they've ever been in for years because no longer do I get you know, you're lucky if you get three weeks yeah four it's short weeks. windows now isn't it you know so I'm working out God what happens if there's no scrum or what happens if there are limited scrums or whatever you're going to have to run, mate. And he wanted to run, and he loves it. You've just reeled off, and for those of you that are listening that, that aren't necessarily into their rugby, a lot of top-end internationals that um, you know have had their ups and downs on and off the field, perhaps, because of lots of different reasons, I suppose. But how would you, how would you then sum up how your relationship is with, with athletes? What's your coach-athlete relationship like? So once you've created that, 
you yeah. tell them what your black and whites are and then you get into changing them and helping them become their best version inside that what sort of environment do you create when they're working with you on a day-to-day basis they know that i'm totally honest if i don't like what i'm saying you'll hear about it they appreciate that they appreciate the honesty yeah, i was going to ask yeah. all of them appreciate it all of them appreciate it and if i'm really mad which not so much now but in the olden days when i was really mad at people it was a case of they knew the one thing that annoys me and my players just don't do this is when somebody doesn't give a hundred percent right now they never did that but you need to know when to give somebody a hug when to give them a kick up the ass you need to understand your player and so i know that i know what makes them tick i know when i remember saying to danny once i said i said my problem is i care too much and i keep you know going mad because i care too much and he said margo that's why we love you do you think it's really important to get to know that athlete well, to find out what their why is, what their drivers are? Oh, you have to. And it doesn't matter if there's 30 of them. When I coached London Scottish, I knew what made every one of those players tick. Do you know what I mean? And, I'm, and I mean, I never, like, when I started coaching rugby, well, I knew there was backs and forwards, but didn't know what anybody did. just looked like a whole mess to me. Mm. And, um, but I learnt off the players. Mm. I still learn off the players. I'll say, look, you did this, what? I didn't quite get that. And sometimes they'll say to me, that was setting up this play and, yeah, I was meant to do this and all sorts of things. I'm like, okay, fair enough. And I do respect their decision because, you know, they're intelligent players. You know, they're experienced, intelligent players. And, I mean, I've got a young rugby player. He's 18. Danny's taught him how to kick. Kyle Sinclair did passing work with him on the park. I said to him, you're the luckiest person in the world to have access to... And at one point, you know, I said to him, you didn't, I gave you that session with Danny today, you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn that session. Now, you want that to happen again, then you start to pull up your socks and you earn that. And do you think they feel that they've got, they're in a safe environment with you where you're obviously being honest, 100% mm. honest to them because you're trying to get them to be better? Do you think they feel safe enough to be able to say exactly how they feel as well? Yeah, they do. I didn't always agree with, yeah. <laughs> with them, right? Yeah. Or sometimes I go, oh, poor me. Oh, poor you. But they know that I've done what they've done, what I'm asking them to do. Do you think you can you, you could still get the best out of somebody if you actually don't bother getting to know them? You just bring, they, no. they turn up. Why don't you think that? Because some coaches do. Some um, coaches think they coaches, do, you know. Yeah. Most coaches do, I think. But We don't know, get measures as a coach as much on if you know their family, their friends, you know what their why is. You have those small conversations a lot of coaches feel that that's again they're not the measurable stuff so they don't they don't manage it they don't yeah. do it whereas what you're saying and, and, and a lot of very experienced world class coaches that I've spoken to they say the same they put the person first yeah. they say it's about getting to know them yeah. what would stop you then if, if you've got an athlete that you don't actually get to know about why would you think they wouldn't then achieve their best if you don't if you don't do that human side of things you just treat them as a spreadsheet almost I, w- I wouldn't know what that's like because I've never done it have you come across athletes that come into your programme that have been treated like that? Yes, and then, yeah. The more And what quick benefits do you, what change do you see? So if it was a young coach or a young manager listening to this and perhaps they weren't spending the time they should do getting to know a player, what benefits do you think there are of getting to know that person, that athlete? You see, I have a huge benefit over most coaches because for the minute they arrive in my squad, I will make them faster. Then they're sitting in the palm of my hands because everybody <laughs> wants to be faster. 
then I make them faster just by teaching them how to run. Just teach them how to run and you'll make them faster if you know yeah. what you do. And then they're like, they've got a grin for ear to ear because they feel the difference. And I mean, I've had kids who say, no, I didn't feel any faster. And I say, ah, you're lying because I can see it. You've got them because they've immediately seen a benefit. That What's the point there? in training if it doesn't make you better? Yeah. That's what coaches need to realise. You only train to make you better. And if you don't get any better, you're as well do nothing and at least you'll be fresh. Right? Somebody, a coach in a very high up position said to me, what, do you expect your players to get better after every session? I say, yes, and they do. Otherwise, what is the point of it? We're just wasting everybody's why, time. Why do you think then, there's, I mean, we've both probably come across coaches in the past that have been very successful and they also think like that. How do you think they keep their jobs? Why do you think they stay where they are, those coaches that have that sort of attitude? Either the person at the top appoints people who's not going to have a go at them. They're not going to question what they do. They're, in inverted commas, yes people. Yeah. They, they want, on their CV... It to see that they are part of that high situation. Doesn't matter where, who, what I put behind Alan Wells winning the Olympics on my CV, they're always going to come second best. Mm. I could like, I did a talk once and he asked me for a CV and I had to go and come up with one. <laughs> I thought, oh God, what, what do you write on this? <laughs> do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. But as you well know, but Ben, I am not a yes person. I'm not going to, you know, if 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 I've got a problem, then you're going to hear it. Right, so I'm never going to work with what I call a bully. Would you say then, you're, as a coach, you're very authentic? How you know, if you're not allowed to question what that person's doing, then how are they going to get any better? And it, they might have something that everybody could learn from, but they're not going to let you in because it'll expose other weaknesses. Mm. I know my own weaknesses, and I will, you know, they're not training, they're not. Um, there's certainly no functionality because nobody else knows how to do it. So somebody asked me, I was talking to them about functionality and they asked me if I had a qualification in it. I said, what would you like me to be? Because I'm the only person that does it. I could be anything you like. <laughs> um, and it's like I got an honorary degree from Edinburgh Napier University, which entitles me to use the term doctor. And I put it on my website just to annoy people. Because <laughs> <laughs> they kept saying I had no qualifications. Oh, there's a doctor. Have you come across any coaches then that you've that actually have, have been very open to you because they know that they, you know, you don't know what you don't know as a coach. And so there's a lack of knowledge that you can provide them with. And rather than bruise their ego and, and push you away, they're very happy to, to bring you in to help their team, their athlete, their, their organisation get better. Since I Brook wanted to do it, it never happened because I said no in the end because the rest of the team weren't as open to change as and thought I knew nothing about rugby. My argument is, I have learned so much of my players. Do you know what I mean? And they've yeah. all played British Lions, international, whatever. So I must have learned something. But Alistair McCarg, who was the Scottish coach at London Scottish, who brought Alan in, wasn't even my job, Alan in, and I, we, looked, we watched the game and I said to Alan, make them run fast, make them run fast for 80 minutes, they're going to win games. If they can pass and catch, they're going to win games. And he adopted my training methods, because Alan kept going away with the bobsleigh team and leaving me with his team. He adopted my training methods and, and changed them into the way he coached. So instead of doing 10 scrums, he would do three and have a rest. And 
everything was at pace. There was no jogging around, passing the ball. I said, you cannot train high volume and expect people to play with high intensity. They're two, two totally different, you know. And all this, now, being in the club for half seven till four o'clock, to me, is not a good idea. What would you do if you if you're in charge? You are in charge of a club. I would do an hour of functionality before we got started, so everybody going out there is physically prepared, body is physically prepared, and functioning as a unit to do whatever's coming next. Now, Zinzan Brook and I, so he wrote, and this is a long time ago. I said you write your perfect week with training sessions, and I wrote mine with fitness sessions, and they completely dovetail. That's why I kept the conversation going mm. until I ended up walking away. But sport is not a nine-to-five job. Sport, the breaks away from sport, mentally and physically, are, are, to me, more important than what you do when you're there. And all these meetings and, oh, God, you're, like the players are sitting there and thinking, why am I in here? What yeah. are you? You're the coach. You work it out and tell me what you want me to do. Right? And that's how it used to be. I totally agree and it, it's my philosophy as well and in fact when you're saying that didn't you before the Moscow Olympics did Alan have some sort of injury a lower back injury or something that meant that you had to reduce the training yeah, going a, into Moscow yeah. and it was a huge benefit because what happened was two weeks before he left to go to Moscow his back seized but he was screaming fast he was too fast too early do you know what I mean? Yes. What people didn't yeah. get. Do you know, if you look back in the Olympic year, Alan ran three races before Moscow. Three. Now they run 103. And so we had the team working on them. There was a physio in a hospital working on them four times a day. The doc was overseeing it. He never did a sprint start before, because I left just before him to go to Moscow. He never did a sprint start till we got to Moscow. But... He was just in the best shape and he was so comfortable with Moscow. The stadium, the place. He was psyching other sprinters. Menea's coach took him off the track because Alan looked so good. And there's a whole load of tricks in sprinting that nobody ever knows. So I would be on the warm-up track and I could tell who was knew they were running fast, who had fear, who had, you know, by the way they warmed up. Alan wasn't looking at them, but everybody was looking at him. So I'm looking at them going, well, okay, you're no worry, you're no worry. But the importance of the team was, when Alan ran, he went back to the village after the heat. I'm sitting there watching every heat, noting down every athlete, what the wind condition was like, who ran flat out, who looked good, who, do you know what I mean? So when the second round came out, and it was totally loaded, it was terrible, but anyway, it was what it was, we could chalk off who had run, who was running. It's not just turning up and running and hope, keeping your fingers crossed. It's like, you know, there's actually a method in this to prepare your athlete to be the best. I mean, I remember my brother saying to me, why were you so exhausted? She said, you look knackered. I said, can you go there, right? Do you know what I mean? Just moving between the warm-up track, trying to get back to the village. All I did was run. But then that's because going back to what you talked about earlier and we're just, we're, I'm lucky we're under the cover here because you might be able to hear the rain just rattling in on the raw iron above us. But um, you talked about how you put the performer first, the athlete first. So it doesn't matter, I guess, or does it matter if you're burning out the people around you? Would no, that... it doesn't. When you're at the Olympics, it's a funny old thing, the Olympics, because it, 
People win it that weren't they expected to win it. People win, like Konevet, they won the wrong Reverse inverted yeah. commas race. People outperform themselves, people underperform. And we went there at that time knowing that we'd left no stone unturned. We'd done everything we could. Now when I look it back and I think, well, there's a whole load of other things we could have done, like functionality, but we d I didn't even know that then. And you go in the hope that you win a medal. But when, as it gets closer and closer to the fact you actually might win the gold medal, the silver becomes a disappointment. Uh, if I look, my, my one and only experience with the Olympics, if we had not won a gold medal and gone home with silver, it would have been, I would have been devastated. Yeah, yeah, and people watching don't realise it. They, you know, it's like on an individual sport, everything's heightened because you live and die by your own efforts. There's nobody to blame. There's nobody to accuse of no giving you the ball and all whatever. And I'm, trust me, I'm not demeaning your achievements, but yeah. an individual, I'm biased because I think the track's the hardest thing to do, but that's... Hey, look, as soon as I, I finished the sevens, I spent every day at the track watching. Yeah. I, I love track yeah. and field and, and everything about it. And like you say, one one slight slight movement yeah. or one decision or something goes awry yeah. and you're, you're, no, you're not even on the podium, no. let alone... No in gold great athletes great athletes have they won Olympic gold medals over yeah. the years yeah. do you know what I mean yeah, I mean, Colin Jackson's is, a good example yeah. isn't he Colin Jackson Steve Cram the middle and long distance runners the Australian guys the New Zealand guys at the time who were brilliant but you know people you know the public are great they are so they used to annoy me because in Edinburgh they'd say see when you come back with a gold medal and I'm like ah! <laughs> but generally the public are great like, obviously, I wasn't in Edinburgh when I was running, but a friend who um, arrived in Edinburgh, she said it was like a ghost thing. Nobody was on the street, the pubs were full, and my mother used to say to me, the bit you didn't get is when Alan wins, it's like New Year, in July. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. She said, you make the country happy. But we never saw that, because we weren't there. <laughs> you know, you didn't get that lift. I mean, we did when we came back from Moscow because of the open deck bus along. I said to Alan, oh, we'll just sit in the bus because nobody's going to be on the streets between the airport and... No, nope, they lined the whole... And it was raining, it was like this. It was... I mean, that to me was just like... Did you get, did you get satisfaction out of that? Because we talked a lot about other people's whys and getting to know the athlete. But what about you? What's your, what's your why? What's your driver to do what you do? I just like seeing people achieve their dreams. That is my, that's why I do this job. And I'm so privileged to actually be able to say that. Now, a dream to one person isn't even an Olympic gold. A dream is playing first team at school. Mm. A dream is, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean caps. It doesn't necessarily mean... It's, sometimes it's just being a professional rugby player. And that's their dream. And that's, to me, is equally as important as, as in, achieving. As in, yeah, I... I I agree. And has it always been, has it, that always been the case? Because one of the questions I was going to ask right at the beginning was the very start of your coaching career to now, has anything remained the same? And I'm sure there's lots of things that you've changed because of experience and everything else. But has there been anything that you've, you've used all the way through? Speedball. A speedball. I love speedball. I got told once that your legs can only move as fast as your arms can move. Is that right? Your legs, your arms control your legs. Okay. Right, that's yeah, different. Yeah. They control the stride line, they control... If you want to teach somebody to run fast, change their arm. Most people run with their legs. They think legs. Kids think you've got to have a high knee lift and a long stride. 
They're comparing themselves to people who are phenomenally strong and fast and powerful. Like, like uh, Michael Johnson. But yes, like, yeah. you know, they're just... Because you can't see that. So why is a child trying to adopt a, a running technique that an adult, a, a high-end seasoned performer uses? Because you can't do it. And then they make themselves slower by using that technique. But it's... If you make... The confidence you give a kid by making them faster is... And they can feel it. You know what? Kids are the best because they, they, they didn't lie. You know, they just tell you it is how it is. And I love that. One final question I've got for you is, is all the things we've talked about and perhaps take the functionality to one side and, and look at the, the rest of it, creating yeah. a high-performance environment. Mm-hmm. What's the one thing that you think probably gives you your kind of biggest bang for your buck? What's the biggest single thing that you think is absolutely vital to have when you working with athletes to get them to be their best speed is my comfort zone speed i adore speed because of what it gives to people immediately and it's it's the one thing everybody craves and not to have it you i'll tell you what not to you know it's what's worse than not having it it's having it and somebody else taking it away that is my biggest bugbear is that happening to because all oh, their confidence goes but you've I mean you've probably heard it a lot on TV where somebody's just mm. screamed up the sideline to score a great try and the commentators will always say well you, that's the one thing you can't coach is speed and exactly. they, and they, they always rubbish. say that you can but the uh, <laughs> Margot you're proving that, that that's possible and uh, and for anybody that you know that, that gets a chance to see some of these athletes that we've talked about that are playing rugby and just have a look at their movement and you'll you'll see some of this it's it's been an absolute pleasure uh, i've really enjoyed it ben thank you for coming and thank you for asking perfect thank you very much thank you i really hope you got a lot from that chat margot well she ruffles feathers i've always enjoyed that as a coach i want people to speak up and say what they think and how they genuinely feel however in professional sport those feathers are too often attached to egos or rigidity and protocol that cannot see beyond the norm. Just like some of the players she mentioned, she probably knows a lot more than those people that deride or downplay her. But speak to those athletes she works with and they can see the difference she makes and the value she brings. It's a great example of always keeping an open mind on how you can help people become their best versions. Help and wisdom and talent doesn't always come in neat, well-behaved, box-ticked packages. If you'd like to know more about Margot, then pop across to her website at wellfast.co.uk and it's also where you can contact her directly too. You can find more details just like that from each episode and relevant links in the podcast description. And please... It really helps if you press that subscribe button on the usual platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. Finally, it really does help us get noticed and help more people find us if you head to Apple to leave a review about the podcast. Thanks for listening.